Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Let's say you were going to go on a little trip, okay? Uh, Let's say you're going to go to Saskatchewan, Canada. If you go to Saskatchewan, Canada, uh, and you go to a little town called Altacane in Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan, Canada, about five kilometers southwest of that town, you'll find a beautiful grove of aspen trees that look very much like the picture you're about to see on the screen. So there's this beautiful grove of aspen trees. Looks a little like that. And they are tall, majestic, uh, pointing straight and true to the sky. About 100 feet away from that, you'll actually see something very different. You'll see another thing that you're about to see a picture of on the screen. You'll see tree, a grove of trees that are twisted up, distorted, bent in on themselves. Uh, this is what the locals call crooked bush. Uh, people for decades have been trying to figure out why the trees grow like this. They grow twisted and bent in on themselves. And scientists actually took a piece of one of those trees, and they took it back to a lab, and they said, well, maybe it's the environment. So let's test that by growing one of these trees in an isolated environment. The trees actually grew, the tree that they grew, ended up being just as twisted as the rest of the trees in the grove. And so they concluded that at some point, one of those trees had a mutation, and it spread. that mutation spread to the whole root system, so the whole grove of trees grows twisted. We're in a message series in Elijah. We're looking at the life of Elijah from 1st and 2nd Kings. One of, the thing, one of the things that happens throughout 1st and 2nd Kings is the writer over and over is contrasting, in a sense, this grove of twisted trees and this grove of beautiful, tall, straight aspens. Uh, and here's what that looks like. So throughout the book, the, the writer seems to have in mind that there's a promised messianic king that the prophets have spoken of, a king who would rule with righteousness, justice, and compassion, a king who the New Testament reveals to be Jesus of Nazareth. And the writer has that king in mind and just keeps, without overtly saying so, keeps contrasting that king to all the various kings from the line of David that he is giving the accounts of. And so without overtly saying so, He's almost, in a sense, standing in between those groves, those two groves of trees, and saying, see these beautiful aspens that point straight and true? These aspens over here are the posture of the true king, uh, rising true north, tall and majestically pointing to the greatness and glory of God. That's the posture of the true king that we're waiting for. But then he just keeps recounting like these other kings from the line of David, And it's almost as if he shifts his gaze each time to crooked bush, these twisted trees, and says, like, no, that's not him. That's not what he looks like. Um, This, instead, is the posture of being bent, twisted, um, bent in on itself, idol worshiping. And so he just keeps, in a sense, pointing out, no, this is not him. He was corrupt and idol worshiping, and his son was, and then his son after him, and then his son was even worse. So this morning, the passage that we're going to look at is actually a passage where the writer is saying, nope, that's not him. 
Uh, the king that we're going to look at was corrupt, twisted, and idol-worshiping, just like his father. And Elijah actually calls him out on that as God's representative. So let's take a look this morning. Uh, listen to 2 Kings chapter 1. If you want to look at it in your Bible, we're going to look at verses 2 to 17. And my favorite person, my wife Kim, is going to read the passage aloud. Uh, 2 Kings 1, verses 2 to 17. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, go and consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going off to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, Why have you come back? A man came to us, they replied. And he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and tell him, This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending messengers to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. The king asked them, What kind of man was it who told you to come? Wait, sorry. What kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, He had a garment of hair and a belt around his waist. The king said, That was Elijah the Tishbite. Then he sent to Elijah the captain with his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, Man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. At this, the king sent to Elijah another captain with his fifty men. The captain said to him, Man of God, this is what the king says. Come down at once. If I am a man of God, replied Elijah, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. So the king sent a third captain with his 50 men. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men. But now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. He told the king, this is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult that you have sent messengers to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Because Ahaziah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king in the second year of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. So throughout this series, we've actually been tracking mostly with King Ahab, King Ahab. Uh, Ahab was Ahaziah's father. Um, he built a temple to idols in Samaria, the capital city of Israel. 
um, in very concrete ways, he worshiped idols and he led others to worship idols. And the hope for the writer is that his son would break that pattern. But we find out from the end of 1 Kings that he actually continues the pattern. Ahaziah continues the pattern of idol worship and leading others to worship idols. And the book of 2 Kings here opens with this horrible accident that he has. He's kind of walking around on the, the roof of the palace in Samaria, and he falls through the lattice, and he severely injures himself. But instead of seeking Yahweh, the giver and sustainer of life, and saying, Yahweh, uh, will I get well? Instead of seeking Yahweh and leaning into a relationship with him, instead, he sends these messengers to seek out this false god. Um, Baal Zebul, Baalzebub, god of Ekron, he's called in the text. Baalzebub, god of Ekron. Ekron is a city in Philistia, neighboring nation of Israel. And Baalzebub is the god that the Philistines worship whose temple is in that city. Uh, Baalzebub is actually not his official name. It's a little bit of a slight variation on his actual official name. His actual official name is Baalzebul. Beelzebul, you'll see that written in some other places in the Bible. Same God, what historians think is going on is this. They actually think that Beelzebub is a derogatory pun. And Israelites would call him Beelzebub to insult this God. So Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. Pretty derogatory name. Beelzebul actually means Lord of Heaven. So the Philistines called him Lord of Heaven. But seemingly, as a derogatory pun, Israelites called him Lord of the Flies. Well, this pun seems to have made its way into regular usage. And so people just, in Israel, if you lived in Israel, you just, the, God, the name for the God was Beelzebub. So 2 Kings 1 calls him Beelzebub. Another reference to Beelzebul in Scripture is the Pharisees actually refer to Beelzebul. They actually accuse Jesus of casting out demons in the name of Beelzebul. They call him the prince of demons. And they say, you cast out demons by the power of the prince of demons, Beelzebul. So apparently, Beelzebul was either a high-ranking demon or maybe even Satan himself. So this highlights the spiritual... Uh, this highlights the spiritual stakes in 2 Kings chapter 1. So this is not merely Elijah who is, a, who is confronting a false god who's a myth. This is actually Elijah confronting a demonic or malevolent being who is masquerading as a Philistine god, using the myth to seduce people into worshiping him and carrying out his destructive will. So, Consorting with this god, Beelzebul, King Ahaziah sends messengers from the palace in Samaria to Ekron. There'll be a map on the screen that kind of shows you what that trip looks like between Samaria and Ekron. It's actually a 60-mile trip. It probably would have been a walk at that time. So these messengers are taking this 60-mile trip to inquire with this false god, and Elijah intercepts them. And he delivers this challenging decree from the Lord. It's actually repeated three different times in the text, as you heard Kim read it. And this was the message. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going off to consult Baalzebub, 
the God of Ekron. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you're lying on. You'll certainly die. God essentially says, look, this pattern of corruption will not continue. And this consorting with Beelzebub is the last straw. And he said, your life is required of you. I'm removing you from power by taking your life. The messengers go back and they deliver this decree to Ahaziah. And he, sa- and, and he says, all right. No, he doesn't say that. This was, this was far from the positive word that he wanted to hear. This was far from the word of affirmation that he was looking for from the God of Ekron. In desperation, the king sends a company of soldiers to assault Elijah. So this company of soldiers approaches the hill that Elijah is sitting on, and Elijah calls down fire, and it consumes this company of 50 men and the captain. A second time, the king sends a company of 50 men. As they approach the hill that Elijah is sitting on, he calls down fire, consuming the men and the captain. A third time, a company of 50 men and their captain come, and as they approach the hill that Elijah is sitting on, the captain calls to Elijah and he says, spare my life, spare my life and the life of my men. And he pleads for mercy. This time God prompts Elijah to go with the men. So he goes with the men, they go to the palace in Samaria and Elijah delivers the decree from the Lord. And shortly after Ahaziah dies. And sadly, sadly, the end to Ahaziah's story is that His legacy was he didn't trust in Yahweh, the giver and sustainer of life. Instead, he trusted in a false god, a counterfeit hope, a counterfeit hope. So that's the first thing I want to surface from the text, a counterfeit hope. Secondly, cultural tensions, cultural tensions. As Kim read the passage, I wonder if you felt some of the tension that I feel when I hear this passage read or when I read this passage. And that's this. As modern Western individualists, I think we probably have not so much of a problem with the fact that Ahaziah gets what's coming to him because we sort of are able to sort of say, oh, well, we know that the text tells us what Ahaziah's faults were. Um, We can see that he had an unrepented heart. We can see that after grace upon grace, he was still making corrupt decisions and he was still hurting himself and other people with those corrupt decisions. And we say to ourselves, like, it's sad, it grieves us, his end was tragic, but we can understand why God basically said no more and he removed him from power by taking his life. I think what's harder for us to understand is as we read this passage, 102 men die and we say to ourselves, the text doesn't really tell us why. Um, we say to ourselves, well, what did they really have coming to them? I mean, seemingly, from what we read in the text, they were just following orders. And I think that we really struggle as modern Western individualists to say, what did they do? What did they do? And seemingly, um, what Elijah did, he did miraculously with the power of God as God's representative. So what's the deal with that? There's a lot of tension here. There's a lot of tension here. And it it would do a disservice not to, to read passage, a passage like this and not surface the tension. So add to this the fact that over the last 2,000 years, there have been too many tragic examples of violence committed in Jesus' name throughout church history. And I think that as we look at this passage, we say to ourselves, is Elijah just being excessively and gratuitously violent? I mean... Could, could Elijah have um, kind of slowed things down and maybe talked it out with the men? 
Now, if we look at the ancient culture, if we look, if we stand in the sandals of the original audience and we look at maybe how they would have viewed this text or heard this text read, it doesn't sort of erase all the tension, but it does um, soften the tension. For me, I feel the tension that I'm surfacing right now. It softens the tension for me to stand in the sandals of the original hearers and the original readers of this passage and sort of say, what does the world look like from their perspective? What would they have seen that maybe it's harder for us to see as modern Western people? And so I want to surface just a number of things from the text. And a number of them are sort of cultural factors that maybe help us understand how ancient people would have seen it differently and would just gone without saying how they saw this passage. So number one, this was an assault likely with an intent to kill. This was an assault likely with an intent to kill. Uh, often, if you read a note about this in a study Bible or in a Bible commentary, then you'll get this point. That in the ancient world, to reverse a curse that somebody had decreed meant to either take their life or to forcibly coerce them to recant the curse. And so very likely, these men were not just approaching the hill to have a nice little chat with Elijah. These men were approaching the hill to very likely kill Elijah. At the very least, they were approaching the hill to harm him, to forcibly coerce him, to retract the decree of the Lord. Secondly, in ancient Near East... The national and spiritual were tightly intertwined. The national and spiritual were tightly intertwined. So often when armies would go out to war or a company like this one would go out to participate in an armed conflict, people went out under the banner of their local God. Different regions had different gods. Different nations had different gods. Now Israel's God, Yahweh, just happens to be the true God, creator of heaven and earth. But the reality is, as the king allied himself with Beelzebul, he was sending out these men under the banner, under, if you will, the demonic authority of Beelzebul. And as he did so, these men would have understood that this was more than just an ideological conflict. This was spiritual warfare. So as these men went out under this banner, it was clear to them it was Yahweh versus Beelzebul. It wasn't merely an ideological disagreement. Third, only God knows the full story. Only God knows the full story. So it would be easy for us to sort of say, well, what did these men really do? I mean, did these men really have it coming to them? I mean, what did they really do? We don't know the answer to that. The text doesn't tell us. So we get one little snapshot here of the end of their lives. Only God is present to every millisecond of every person's story. And so, as far as we know, every single one of these 102 men could have received mercy a thousand times over when they deserved death. We don't know. We only see a little snapshot of the end of their life here. And it's only God, because he is present to every millisecond of every story, that can justly have the perspective and the wisdom to, to determine what someone's fate is. Fourthly, God is generous and just. 
God is generous and just. So over and over in the pages of Scripture, it's revealed to us that God is generous and just. There's all kinds of things that we don't know why it happened the way that it happened. But when we don't know why something happened the way that it happened, we still know the most important thing that we need to know. We know that God is generous and just. There's no better place for someone to be than in the hands of a God who's generous and just. And so we leave the mystery to his good character. When there's mystery, we leave the mystery in the hands of his good character. And then fifthly, ancient people assumed representative headship. Ancient people assumed representative headship. Okay, that's just a way of saying this. In the ancient world, if you were, let's say, a soldier in an army, it was your assumption and your value that your choices were not your own, that your life and death perhaps didn't depend on your individual choice. But when you swore allegiance to your captain or to your king, you gave up the right to experience the blessings or the consequences of their wise choices or their poor choices because you were surrendering that to your representative head. Now, that's not a very modern Western way of thinking. Um, we don't assume and value things like representative headship in the modern Western world. But in a way, it is still part of our experience. It's still part of the air that we breathe. Even though we don't value and assume representative headship, we still experience the consequences of people's poor choices all the time, don't we? We might call that collateral damage. Through no fault of our own, we experience the collateral damage of other people's poor choices. So a counterfeit hope, cultural tensions, thirdly, collateral damage, collateral damage. The 102 men who died by fire experienced the collateral damage of the king's poor decision. In many ways, you and I also experience the collateral damage of other people's poor de decisions. Uh, many of us here were raised by parents that were uh, perhaps had anger issues or avoidance issues, and we were deeply hurt and wounded by that. And that's something that we've needed to work through throughout our lives. Uh, the decisions of maybe spouses or relatives for some of us may have put us in significant financial debt that we never chose to incur. Many of us maybe struggle with a toxic workplace environment that we had no hand in creating, but maybe because there's some baggage that our boss has, our toxic workplace environment is difficult for us to navigate, and that impacts us every day. And so we are impacted by the collateral damage of other people's poor choices. And Scripture reveals that the same holds true in our relationship with God. The same holds true in our relationship with God. In Romans 5, we read about the collateral damage of our first father, Adam. Our first father, Adam, betrayed God and set himself up as God. And because of that, you and I experience collateral damage. Romans 5.12 says this, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people, because all have sinned. Paul, who wrote this passage, pictures sin as a spiritual pandemic that started with Adam, and it's infected the human race down through the ages. It infects human hearts with pride and self-centeredness. It spiritually deforms us from the image of God that we were created to reflect. Because of our father, Adam, 
You and I are born with infected hearts, corrupted by sin. And now each of us acts on that infection and spreads that infection in different ways related to our unique vulnerabilities and struggles. Collateral damage, collateral damage. But the flip side is also true. The flip side is also true. There's collateral blessing. Through no merit of our own, you and I also experience collateral blessing. A counterfeit hope, cultural tensions, collateral damage, and lastly, collateral blessing. Collateral blessing. So the 50 men whose lives were spared experienced the collateral blessing of their captain's humble choice. In many ways, you and I experience collateral blessing, and we have in many ways. Many of us in this room have parents that sacrificed at great cost to themselves to love us, to nurture us, and this has contributed greatly to the emotional, spiritual health of the adults that we've become. Many, many of us married into families that were more gracious and more loving than our families of origin, and this has been a significant help to us in growing and becoming whole as an adult. If your boss, let's say, enters counseling or joins a recovery group or goes to a marked man or a women's walk weekend to sort of deal with the baggage that's contributing to him or her creating this toxic workplace environment, you didn't choose that, but you get to experience the blessing of it every day as the culture of your workplace becomes healthier. In Romans 5, we also read about the collateral blessing that comes through Jesus. Scripture says that just as we experience collateral blessing in our relationships with each other, so we experience it in our relationship with God. Paul writes this in Romans 5, verses 15 and 17. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So Paul pictures Jesus' death on our behalf as the cure to the spiritual pandemic of sin. And he says, the cure came about not because you and I were faithful to God, but Jesus was faithful to God on our behalf. We started by taking a look of a picture of those crooked trees in Crooked Bush, Saskatchewan, Canada. Let's take a look one more time at that picture and let's reflect a little bit more on that. It's a hard reality to accept, but the picture that Scripture gives us is you and I are twisted and bent like those trees. We're bent in on ourselves. We're deformed from the image that we were created to bear. And we're ruined beyond what we're able to repair on our own. We were actually created to be that grove of trees 100 feet from Crooked Bush. We were created to be trees that grow tall and straight, majestically uh, rising true north, pointing to the glory and greatness of God. But instead, the infection of sin has distorted the likeness of God in us. And because of this, we're so ruined from what we were meant to be 
that God would be just in sending his fire to fall on any one of us. Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn spent eight years in a, a work camp under Stalin's regime. And reflecting back on that, Solzhenitsyn famously wrote these words. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. One and the same human being is at various stages, under various circumstances, a totally different human being. At times he is close to being a devil, at times to sainthood. Confronted by the pit into which we are about to toss those who have done us harm, we halt, stricken dumb. It is after all only because of the way things worked out that they were the executioners and we weren't. It's powerful. Sultanitsyn just vividly captures the idea that we often think of the problem with the human race as out there. It's those people. And he says, it is out there. He says, it's also in here. The problem is a heart in every one of us that's infected with self-centeredness and pride, that is prone to worship control and comfort. A heart that's desperately in need of healing. But here's the good news. In God's great love, because of his abiding and unconditional love for us, he pursued us. And he offers us restoration rather than destruction. Jesus sacrificially surrendered himself to the fire of God's judgment so that sin could be atoned for, so that we could experience wholeness and healing instead of destruction. 700 years before Jesus died on the cross, Isaiah wrote these words in chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds were healed. Jesus was crushed so that new life could be offered to us, so that by faith in him, we could receive a new position as his child, loved, accepted, delighted in. New union with Jesus, whereas before we were far from him. And new power through God's spirit to unbend in us what's been bent and distorted by sin. But here's the thing. Union with Christ is one of those things that we often talk about sort of just as an easy thing. It is an incredible blessing. It's an incredible blessing to be united to Christ through faith in him. And yet our experience of being united to Christ, Scripture says, is not always easy. Sometimes it's hard. It's hard. It hurts for God to take a tree that's twisted and bent in on itself. It hurts for God to shape that tree into a tree that points true north to his glory and greatness. In our union with Jesus, sometimes the healing feels like hurting. Sometimes the unbending feels like breaking. Sometimes the untwisting feels like we're going to be undone. Scripture says that we who are united to Christ by faith in him, we daily experience the sufferings of Christ so we can daily share in his resurrection. 
And so for those who are in Christ through faith in him, just when it feels like the fire of God's judgment is falling on us, it's actually the sanctifying fire of God's spirit burning up not us, but burning up the disease of sin in us. Just when it feels like God is bending us to break us, it's actually God reshaping us into who we actually are. People whose hearts and lives increasingly reflect the heart and life of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. This morning, in just a few moments, we're actually going to have the opportunity to reflect on a song that just deeply explores our union with Jesus. Sometimes we think to ourselves, like, our union with Jesus, it's all about niceties. And it does absolutely come about because of God's incredible grace. But maybe some of you this morning are saying, why does the experience of relationship with God feel so hard? Why does the experience feel so hard? And the answer that I would simply give you is this. God tells us right up front. He tells us for those who are in Christ, part of the deal is he allows us to daily share in the sufferings of Christ so we can daily share in resurrection, in new life. He's growing new things. He's making us into who we actually are. And so this morning, uh, our worship team is going to share with us a song to help us to deeply reflect on that reality. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil I now surrender, you are breaking new ground. So I yield to you and to your careful hands. When I trust you, I don't need to understand. So make me a vessel. Make me an offering, make me whatever you want me to be. God, I came here with nothing, but all you have given me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine in the soil i now surrender you are breaking new trust you, I don't need to understand. So I yield to you and to your careful hand. When I trust you, I don't need to understand. 
opportunity this morning to share in communion. We're going to remember the bread and the cup as we deeply remember Jesus' body broken and his blood poured out for us. If you are joining us online, this would be a fantastic opportunity to go to wherever you are watching this on your screen and find some bread, find some grape juice or the closest thing you've got to it that's on hand and participate with us even wherever you are virtually. We're going to just simply take some time and we're going to quietly, silently talk with God, prepare our hearts to sort of touch these symbols, smell them, feel them, taste them, and remember what they're about. Just encourage you in this time of silence to Remember Jesus' body broken for you and his blood poured out for you. Just picture what he did for you and say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that, you, that the fire of God's judgment fell on you so that instead I could have forgiveness, wholeness, healing. Confess sin to God. Ask him to bring sin to mind to confess to him and know that you're forgiven as you receive that forgiveness that he's already earned. And just acknowledge to him, God, here's the ways that it's been hard lately. Here's the ways it's been difficult. But I recognize that your path for me isn't always easy. And resurrection often comes by participating in your sufferings. So let's take some time to silently talk with God. And then I'll pray at the end of that time.
Lord, thank you for your body crushed for us. Thank you for your blood poured out for us. God, thank you for the gracious offer that as we place our faith in you, we're given a new position as your child, new union with you. God, a new presence and power in us to sanctify us, to make us who we were always meant to be. God, even as we just reflect deeply on the meaning of these symbols, speak to us, remind us both that we belong to you and God, that you are actively at work in us, healing what's broken, straightening what's bent. And God, even as we just heard in the song, God, we lean into that. We lean into, we surrender to what's even difficult that you're doing in our lives. And God, we know that in some profound sense, that's where the freedom is. That's where the freedom is. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to one of the stations near you. There's a few on the floor, some up front here. There's some in the balcony. And I just invite you to take those symbols and take them back to the seat with you. Take the bread, take the cup, bring them back to your seat with you. And we're going to actually share in the time of taking them together. Just a uh, one note, if you are on a gluten-free diet, every station is gluten-free. So no worries about that. I want to start by saying, let's have from the aisle on over this way, whether on the floor or in the balcony, just invite you to stand up, find the station nearest you, grab the bread and cup and just bring it right back to your seat with you. I'd like to invite, whether on the floor or in the balcony, from the aisle on over this way to the station nearest you, just invite you to take the symbols and bring them back to your seat with you. Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, this church that he was deeply involved in helping to plant. And as he wrote to the Corinthians, he remembered the, the Last Supper, 
He reflected back on Jesus' night with, uh, sharing Passover with his disciples on the night that he was arrested. And as Paul reflects back on that, he says, he left us patterns. He left us patterns to regularly remember his death, resurrection, and return. He says here in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Paul goes on to write, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together. We're going to wrap up our time together this morning. By standing, we're going to respond to that song we just reflected on by singing a portion of it. Just stand and sing together to close our time of worship with each other. Make me your vessel. So make me your vessel. Make me an offering. Make me whatever you want me to be. God, I came here with nothing but all you have given me. Jesus, bring new wine out. Make me an offering, make me whatever you want me to be. God, I came here with nothing, but all you have given me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. Jesus, Jesus, bring new wine out of me. God bless you. What a privilege to worship together. Have a fantastic Sunday and a great week. See you again soon.